Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet. I'm Francesca Toey and it's October the 30th. Today we're discussing the new 2017 Lancet Countdown report on climate change, titled From 25 Years of Inaction to a Global Transformation for Public Health. And joining me today are Dr Nick Watts and Professor Elizabeth Robinson. Welcome both. Please can you briefly introduce yourselves? Hi, thanks very much for having us here. My name's Dr. Nick Watts, and I'm the Executive Director of the Lancet Countdown, tracking progress on health and climate change. Thank you for having us. I'm Elizabeth Robinson. I'm a Professor of Environmental Economics at the University of Reading and one of the co-authors of the Countdown. Thank you both again. So this report isn't the first of its kind. We started from the 2015 Commission. And so you're going to talk about this a bit for us, aren't you, Nick? So what is the Lancet Countdown on health and climate change? You're absolutely right there. Um, the Lancet Medical Journal has been actively involved and, and publishing on the links between public health and climate change for, for a number of years now. And this has been punctuated by a few large reports in the form of a Lancet Commission in 2009 and in 2015. They talked about the threats that climate change posed to human health and the opportunities of a potential response for human health. What the Lancet Countdown does is it builds on those foundations. We're a global collaboration, an independent collaboration of 24 academic institutions and intergovernmental organizations from every continent around the world. And we exist to provide an annual report tracking the progress of the implementation of the Paris Agreement, the UN Climate Change Agreement, and the health benefits that this progress brings. And we do that by publishing 40 indicators of progress across five different thematic areas. We look at the health impacts of climate change, health system adaptation and resilience, the health benefits of mitigation, the economics and finance that help unlock these transitions, and then the public and the political engagement uh, on which all of this turns. So as you refer to, Nick, there are these five sections in your report, and we'll be discussing aspects of some of these during the podcast. The first section is the impact of climate change. So Elizabeth, can you describe how climate change is impacting worldwide health right now? and specifically refer to perhaps nutrition? And what will this impact on health look like in the future? So I think the first thing to say is it's quite hard to isolate the impact of climate change on undernutrition, but what we can do is look at it at a number of scales. So if we think about food security, it's to do with a lot more than there just being the right amount of food. There has to be food and it has to be available in the right places and it has to be affordable. So, so we can look at certain scales as to how climate change can affect uh, food security in that way. So certainly there's already evidence that crop yields are being affected negatively. If we look in temperate regions, as we have climate change, actually the carbon dioxide fertilization, the warmer temperatures can enhance yields. So in Australia until 10 years ago, climate change was having a positive impact. But overall, we're actually starting to see um, crop yields being compromised, particularly in lower latitude countries. And so the total amount of food that's going to be available is going to be compromised in the future because of climate change, and we're seeing that. But then more than that, when it comes to undernutrition at the moment, what we're seeing is uh, weather shocks that can have a negative effect on um, access to food and therefore undernutrition. And we see two aspects of that. Countries that are highly dependent on local food production are where we already have a high prevalence of undernutrition and where climate change is having the greatest effect. So if we look at countries in southern Africa, we can see high undernourishment and high vulnerability to climate change. If we look in Asian countries, we can see just large numbers of um, undernourished people and, again, countries where climate change could have a negative impact. 
So then on the other side, we see, we see food systems at a global level, very integrated. So we see countries where they're vulnerable to domestic production shocks through climate change. And then we see countries that are vulnerable because they are so dependent on world food systems that are vulnerable to climate change. An example that a lot of people know about is the 2008 food crisis. And there, successive droughts in Australia, one of the key sort of breadbasket regions of the world, led to very high prices, uh, food prices, and one of the consequences we saw was uh, food riots in Haiti. And uh, not only uh, the prime minister was overturned, but, but people were really feeling they couldn't afford food because of the price of food. But it's very hard to disentangle this from how the systems, institutions, governments react to food shortages. But certainly we're seeing impacts in terms of food weather shocks that are more frequent and in terms of gradually increasing temperatures that are reducing yield potentials. One of those indicators is obviously the heat waves and, like you said, exposures and effects on food. So, Nick, if you could touch on what the key messages from this 2017 report, what indicators have been part of this global transformation that you refer to in the title of your paper and what indicators perhaps need a bit more progress still? Sure. That's a complex question. Uh, and, and part of the reason why it's such a difficult question is because, as we've said, there are 40 indicators in the report covering completely different aspects of the relationship between health and climate change. We look at the links between health, climate change and nutrition, like Liz spoke to. But we also talk about the health co-benefits of phasing out coal-fired power. When we take these 40 indicators as a whole, we see three key messages that emerge. Firstly, the human symptoms of climate change are unequivocal and they're potentially irreversible. And they're affecting the health of populations around the world, not just in the future, but today. And we have a series of indicators that speak to that, whether we're talking about uh, the additional 125 million people that have been exposed to extremes of heat between 2000 to 2016, or whether we talk about the spread of vector-borne diseases like dengue fever through um, a number of vectors, but the two that we look, look at in detail in the report is Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, or whether we look at the 46% increase in the, in the occurrence of extreme weather events um, up until present day that we've, that we've seen as a result of climate trends and the fact that the economic losses from those extreme weather events are in the hundreds of billions uh, at an annual level, but 99% of those economic losses that are occurring in low-income countries are uninsured. So those are just a few of our indicators that back up the first key message. The, the second key message is that the delayed response to climate change over the past 25 years has jeopardized human life and livelihoods. And we arrive at this message by taking a look at the adaptation indicators and the mitigation indicators that the countdown tracks. And what we find is that on the whole, when we look at the last 25 years, progress has been slow. In fact, often it's gone in the wrong direction or at best remained flat. We haven't seen enough change um, in terms of investment in renewable energy. We haven't seen enough change in the agricultural system. We haven't seen enough change in the way that we build our cities. They're still designed around the car rather than around the person. And that slow transition that we've seen since the signing of the UN Climate Change Agreement in 1992, we believe is, is putting our health at risk. But there's a third key message, and, and this is quite an important one for us, which is that although progress has been historically slow, over the last five years, we've begun to see an accelerated response in two sectors. And in 2017, momentum is starting to build across a number of these areas. Crucially, the direction of travel is set. 
whilst we urgently need to increase the speed of that direction, um, we believe that the world is heading towards towards a future that is healthier uh, and cleaner and better for the planet as well as for our own well-being. And there where we look at that, we, we see glimmers of hope in terms of the way that the electricity generation sector is changing and the way that the transport systems around the world are changing, not fast enough, but much, much faster than they have been over the last two decades. Thank you. It is a bit shocking that this delayed response has put human health at risk, but it is good to hear that there is some momentum building and these positive action going on. So you've mentioned a few of the indicators and one that you touched on was dengue and the mosquitoes as the vectors that transmit it. And dengue is a climate sensitive infectious disease and a lot of global resources are dedicated to tackling infectious diseases. To what extent should climate change be an important consideration in this area? Absolutely, um, Francesca, and, and that's something that I think we are particularly concerned about is the increase or the potential increase in, in the transmission of dengue fever around the world. As you say, there's a huge amount of global resource that goes into tackling dengue fever and goes into tackling infectious diseases. And it's almost a fantastic example of the way in which climate change acts as a threat multiplier. It takes many of the global health challenges that health professionals have been tackling for decades and exacerbates them. It does this by undermining the social and the environmental determinants of good health that we all depend on and that we don't quite realize that we depend on until the environment starts to change. These are things like clean air, safe drinking water, nutritious food, um, uh, shelter from extremes of weather. And specifically when it comes to, to our indicator on dengue fever, what the Lancet Countdown does is we've developed a vectorial capacity model for the transmission of dengue, looking at two mosquitoes, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, and observe a change in a number of climate trends from 1950 through to present day, seeing a 9.4% increase in the capacity for the transmission of dengue fever from Aedes aegypti and an 11.1% increase from Aedes albopictus. This is something that we expect to get substantially worse over time. And if the question is, to what extent should climate change be an important consideration in the response to dengue fever, I think the answer is that climate change should be central to that response. We have to be thinking about how the climate is going to change, how populations and demographic profiles are going to change over the next five years, 10 years, and up to the end of the century. Because if we don't, we're going to be operating on poor information and uh, we, know that, we know that public health systems and good effective public health practice relies on effective data. Another indicator in your report, as you said earlier, was part of mitigation and adaptation to climate change. So can we not just adapt our way out of climate change? I think there is a temptation to feel that we can adapt our way out of any impacts of climate change. And climate change is sort of sometimes seen as something that is going to happen in the future and there's uncertainty associated with it. But we know with a high degree of uncertainty that the impact of climate change is happening and that this is a very nonlinear system and the costs of adaptation are going to increase over time. But I think something else that's really important, I think the Lancet Countdown really highlights, is that activities we can take that are mitigation activities are just sensible activities to take right now. So why wouldn't we reduce air pollution? Because it will improve our health. So a country that, that reduces its emissions, its coal-fired power stations, is improving the health of its populations. Why wouldn't I as an individual choose to walk and cycle more and improve my health that way? I improve my health by not driving in my car 
and there's a benefit to society through that. Why wouldn't governments encourage more nutritious eating in higher-income countries by encouraging a lower consumption of ruminant meat, which would improve our health and improve planetary health? So a lot of the activities that we would take that would mitigate make sense for our individual health right now, and they make sense for planetary health. And these are activities that will take the pressure off our health services by improving the health of people. And then there's just the reality, like I mentioned before, that you can imagine trying to go up a, a, an escalator that's moving down. So you try to go up the downward moving escalator, and the downward moving escalator is, is the climate change, and walking up the escalator is our adaptation efforts. And if we slow down climate change, we slow down that escalator. And if we don't, we are going to have to move faster and faster to try to keep up. So on several dimensions, the sensible thing to do is to undertake these mitigation activities that have an immediate impact on our health and have a, an immediate impact on the planet that we will benefit in the future when the adaptation costs would be lower. Moving on to another section of your report you mentioned was the phase out of coal. How close are we really to phasing out coal and what are the obstacles that still remain? The report makes clear that whilst over the last two decades the total primary energy supply from coal-fired power globally increased dramatically over the early part of um, so the 1990s and early 2000s. In 2013, it peaked and then has begun to decline rapidly. In fact, between 2016 and 2017, the total planned capacity for, um, for construction, so the amount of coal that was planned to be brought online, halved, which is a really impressive shift in the way that the world is starting to think about and plan its energy systems. But the reason this is so important is because the phase-out of coal-fired power and uh, transition to renewable energy is one of those key early low-hanging fruits. And so to the extent that we start to see countries like the United Kingdom commit to phase-out coal by 2025, we start to see uh, Canada commit to phase-out coal and other countries in the European Union, these are incredibly positive steps, not just for climate change, because uh, as we say, it's a, it's a crucial area in terms of sort of low-hanging interventions. But it's also incredibly important in terms of preventing the deaths that, that happen as a result of air pollution from coal-fired power. And there we see over 800,000 deaths in China, India, and the OECD from coal-fired power alone every year. And so to the extent that we take those early and relatively easy steps, um, this is a win-win for public health and it's a win-win for, for climate change. If I can add that to a little bit about why it might be a little bit difficult. We know that um, this is a potentially low-hanging fruit, but of course it is actually a little bit tricky. And, and one of the terms that people talk about quite a lot is this concept of stranded assets. If countries stop using coal tomorrow, then there'll be a lot of coal in the ground that otherwise would have been valuable. And there would have been an important income stream for countries and often lower, low and middle income countries. And then we would look at the coal-fired power stations, and maybe they could be retrofitted, or maybe they would be stranded assets too that would suddenly have no value. So there is the reality of how one deals with that. And so this is not a technological problem. This is a political problem, and this is an economic problem. And this is an issue of who would bear the costs of not burning coal in the future. There are some technical solutions that people talk about, such as carbon capture, which would allow us to continue to burn coal and capture the carbon dioxide. But we don't have that solution yet. And so in this respect, we know what to do, we know what we can do, but actually implementing this politically and economically is hard. Thank you indeed. And it will be interesting to see whether the countries that have committed to phasing out coal 
by those certain dates actually achieve it. So moving on, you did mention a couple of numbers of the deaths from cold fire powers and similarly you've created a new metric that shows the premature mortality attributed to different ambient air pollutants. Please can you discuss this and how we need to tackle air pollution? The Lancet countdown and our indicators, as we've talked about, look at look at a whole range of different health co-benefits to public health from, from mitigation efforts. And one of the most interesting ones and one of the largest potential benefits that we see are in interventions that help tackle air pollution. And the reason for this is increasingly the world is coming to the understanding that air pollution is actually a particularly concerning health threat. Globally, uh, the WHO and the Global Burden of Disease talk about estimates of deaths from indoor and outdoor air pollution somewhere between sort of five to six and a half million every year. Globally, when you add on all of pollution, uh, including air pollution, the Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health totaling that number up, up to nine million deaths every year. And so to the extent that interventions that tackle climate change can help alleviate some of the burden on health systems and can help improve uh, health by tackling air pollution. I think that's a fantastic thing that we should be trying to, to link up and, and sort of unlock those win-wins. To the extent that we can unlock some of those win-wins for climate change and for health, I think that that's something that we should all be striving towards. And to that end, the Lancet Countdown's indicators on air pollution and the health co-benefits of mitigation look at new models of attributable deaths to air pollution. And so we trial this out in the 2017 report for 21 countries in Southeast Asia and come to quite a concerning figure, which is just looking at ambient, so outdoor air pollution um, from particulate matter smaller than 2.5 micrometers. We see 1.9 million deaths in 2015. Many of these are potentially preventable if we tackle some of these low-hanging fruit. Phasing out coal-fired power is something that we've already spoken about but a lot of these deaths also come from road transport. And to the extent that we're starting to see a transition in the way that the world runs and thinks about its transport systems, that's a very positive thing. And those are one of the, is one of the sort of positive key messages that the Lancet Countdown's report draws out. The fact that we are seeing electric vehicles starting to reach cost parity with their non-electric counterparts which is something that we didn't think would happen up until 2030, but is actually poised to happen by the end of this year, perhaps early next year. And starting to see 2 million uh, electric vehicles sold last year globally. Those are quite impressive numbers that show a market that's starting to mature. And that's important because of the potential benefits that it brings for public health. Finally, what are the next steps for the Lancet Countdown? What can we expect from you next? One of the things we're certainly looking to do in, in the next years is to really make much closer link with the actual health outcomes. So if we look at something like the indicator of undernutrition, we are working hard to make that link between climate and undernutrition, which already is quite noisy. And then from that, we would like to make the link between undernutrition and the actual health outcomes. The Lancet Countdown is an international collaboration. We're a collaboration of 24 institutions around the world. And we plan to be here reporting annually on the links between health and climate change and the implementation of the Paris Agreement from now until 2030. But we know that there's a lot more work that the world needs to do, just as much as there's a lot more work that we need to do. We need to improve our indicators. We need to get better at understanding the data, understanding the links between climate change and public health. Um, and to do that, we need the help of the global public health community. We need the help of a broad array of experts, um, agricultural economists like Liz, climate scientists, physicists, development experts, social scientists, uh, engineers, 
we have all of that expertise within the Lancet countdown, but I think going forward, we're putting the call out, asking for help from experts that work on environmental health, climate change, and public health to come forward and help us improve these indicators and help us make the case that ultimately the response to climate change is a response that is good for public health. Well, climate change is such an important topic and the things that you've highlighted show how important it is to human health and you provide opportunities for people around the world to be able to start making some positive changes. So I'd go online and have a read of the report that is now available and there's also a lot of interactive and video bits that summarise some of the key messages. And thank you both Nick and Elizabeth for taking the time to speak to us about this topic. Thank you so much for inviting us to talk about the countdown. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.